This podcast has been brought to you by Rutgers University Women in Business, New Brunswick. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to our fifth episode of Wednesdays with Wib. My name's Jane Marie Lai, and I'm your host for this episode. I'm a sophomore at Rutgers University, majoring in finance and economics, and I am very excited to be talking to Professor Christina Durante about her career journey and what it's like being a professor at Rutgers University. Our professor here is the Rutgers Business School's Marketing Department Vice Chair, and prior to academia, she also worked in publicity. Her works have been featured in incredible publications like the Wall Street Journal, New York Times, and many others. So, Christina, so glad to have you on our podcast. How have you been doing? Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. I'm doing okay, considering the times that we're in and, you know, being on lockdown with my kids and my dog, but, you know, it's, um, I'm doing well. And uh, how are you doing? I'm doing well, too. Unfortunately, I don't have a pet at home, but uh, otherwise, all is well. <laughs> So I want to start off by giving our listeners a introduction. So tell us a little about yourself. So as you mentioned, I'm a professor in the marketing department at Rutgers Business School. I'm also the vice chair of the department and I'm the research director for the Center for Women in Business at Rutgers Business School. So I'm also a social psychologist, so it's kind of strange, right? So I'm in the business school, but my uh, PhD and area of expertise is social psychology. And uh, most of my research focuses on women and families. So I'm really interested in the decision-making um, of uh, women and the consumer behavior of women and how people make spending decisions on behalf of their children. So a lot of my research looks at looks at that. And um, I'm an evolutionary social psychologist, actually, and a lot of people don't know what that is. But I look at uh, historical, uh, oh, my God. <laughs> that was such a broad question. <laughs> yeah, it's okay. Kind of like, yeah, that um, kind of high level overview. is. Pretty yeah, good. so um, it's like, I really don't know what you want to know. But that is, you know, that's kind of like me in a nutshell. I don't know. <laughs> well, that is a incredibly awesome nutshell. Um, and it does sound like a fascinating career so far. Um, but before we kind of get into your professorship, let's start at the very beginning. Um, you kind of mentioned your professional experiences as a publicist. So mm -hmm. what was that experience like coming from college? So it was, I'm so glad I had that experience. Uh, not a lot of thought went into it. I kind of stumbled into that part of my career. Because when I was an undergraduate at Boston University, I did an internship at a advertising agency in uh, Boston that did the regional publicity and promotions for all the major film studios. And my thought process, I really didn't start out wanting to be a publicist. I was at Boston University to study broadcast journalism, and I wanted to be in news, basically. I wanted to be the next Diane Sawyer. And so... I was looking at internships at local um, news affiliates, and for some reason, you know, working the 3 a.m. shift in, you know, the CBS affiliate in Framingham didn't appeal to me as much as working in the movies did when I was younger. And so when I had the choice between the two internships, the, the PR and, and advertising for the movie studios was was 
much more appealing to me. And so that's kind of how I, I, I stumbled into it. And then I, I, I realized that you could have a lot more career stability uh, and income, at least at the beginning, if you had a career in public relations as opposed to broadcast journalism. So that's kind of how that went for, for me. Uh, and, but I'm, I'm really glad that I, you know, had the experience that I did. Um, but that's really how I got into it. And um, I, I, don't, I don't know how much you know about publicity or public relations, but it, it, it basically is a job that entitles persuading other people. So you sort of have to guide people's perspectives or perceptions of products or talent or movies and get them to want to uh, buy your product or see your movie. And what I realized over the course of, you know, almost a decade long career is that I was okay at public relations, but I really wasn't great at it. Because one of the things that I never learned as an undergraduate was the psychology behind why people do the things that they do. And so I, you know, I struggled a lot in, in publicity because, you know, I had to working. So what I should have said, you know, backtracking a little bit is that I was doing the regional publicity. And then immediately when I graduated, I got a job in Los Angeles doing the publicity, national feature publicity for uh, MGM, uh, which was a, a bigger, more active studio at the time. And I was working for the uh, vice president of publicity there. So, um, and that's, that's where I started. And from there, I also was in the uh, marketing and publicity for Planet Hollywood. And I did street team marketing for Loud Records, which was in the 90s, a very popular record label, hip hop record label. So Wu-Tang Clan, Mob Deep, uh, Exhibit, Big Punisher, uh, Fat Joe. <laughs> so I, 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 I bopped around to these three different companies that are very different from one another because I, I thought, you know what, I'm not really good at persuading uh, the, you know, the talent in our movie is to do the interviews that I need them to do. For some reason, I'm not good at convincing people, uh, media or talent to, you know, um, you know, cooperate. So why don't I go to the street level and do more like grassroots marketing, um, guerrilla marketing in, you know, the urban neighborhoods working with the street teams. Maybe that would be better for me. And that's why I went to work for Loud Records. And then it was just, it was, it was, it, there was no structure whatsoever to, you know, working with the street teams. It was really difficult. This is pre-cell phones. And so I, you know, got a little bit frustrated with that. And then I moved on to Planet Hollywood, which was more of a, you know, a, an organization that had some structure around their um, publicity and promotions. Um, but along the way, never really hitting my stride and getting really frustrated with my inability to do my job. And I realized that I just had no persuasion skills. And so, but that in the end is what motivated me to start taking psychology classes, which really piqued my interest in human behavior. And that led to graduate school and me being here with you today. So <laughs> I guess in the end it was, it was good, but you know, it, there was some trials and tribulations with figuring out what the right path was for myself. 
Yeah, I definitely agree. Because when you're in your early 20s, you're just kind of exploring all those kind of possibilities. So with regards to that, do you have any kind of advice with people who are still trying to figure out what they want to do within their first few jobs? Yes, I do, actually. So it turned out that I knew deep inside of me what I wanted to do, what kind of really made me happy. So I told you that I started out as a broadcast journalism major. I really wish I would have stayed there because I really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed, you know, delivering the news. In fact, I had a news program that I produced in the basement, my grandparents' basement with my cousin called News Center One. And we would put little news sketches together. It's kind of like, you know, SNL's weekend update. But, you know, we spent our weekends doing that and I, I loved it. And so that's what I went to school for. And then when I got there, you know, I, I realized that, you know, there was going to be some work involved that you don't start at the top. I tried, you know, I, I even tried out for um, being an MTV VJ. I really wanted to start at the top. You know, I thought like, you know, I'm so good at this. I'm going to be the next, you know, Christian Amanpour. Christina Durante, NBC News, the Pentagon. I mean, that's what I thought I wanted to do. And I mean, and I, and, and I loved it, but I thought it was like a direct shot to the top. And that was kind of my immaturity, uh, you know, expecting, you know, because I had gotten so much praise for my delivering the news as in high school that I thought that, you know, it'd be an easy um, turnaround to a career. And, and instead of, you know, getting pulled away by the thought of working on movies. I wish I was stuck with what was in my gut, because a lot of times I think when we're young, we get sidetracked by what other people find really valuable and cool. And that becomes what we think is cool too. So, you know, I, it was a sort of a shiny path, you know, oh, I could be in Hollywood. <laughs> and, and that sort of over, over took, you know, the path that I, I think I had, I think I was right about that. In fact, I'm starting to do, you know, voiceover work now and get back to it a little bit because I, I really do think that that was, you know, I was on to something because publicity didn't work out for me. It was very frustrating. And it was because I don't think it was mine. It wasn't my path. It was the path that I thought would look, be cool, certainly in other people's eyes. And then it became something that I valued because I loved how people responded to me working in that industry, even though I didn't, you know, deep down, it wasn't for me. Yeah, it really highlights how you really should figure out what you want to do instead of what other people expect you to do. Yeah, and there are a lot, you know, some people really, I'm really impressed by some young people who really know, you know, and, and may. I wasn't like this, but a lot of young people, they kind of really have a strong sense of self. And I admire that so much um, because it's hard, you know, when you're young, this is when your peers and really have, can have some significant sway in your decision-making. And it certainly did for, for me and, and to stay true to, you know, what you feel is best for you even if other people are saying, you know, are naysayers, like, you know, yo, it's gonna, you know, even my family, they were like, you're gonna make zero, there's no stability, and you're gonna make pennies, there's no stability in broadcast journalism, you know, you won't have, you know, they might not even give you insurance, Um, you might be going from job to job, I mean, there was a lot of, like, negatives that were poured onto me, 
And so that coupled with, you know, the internship looking better for in the publicity area, you know, caused me to shift. So yeah, I give it to people who can really stick with it and know from an early age and don't have to wait until, you know, 30 years later. Exactly. And you kind of covered it a little um, in our conversation, but what were some of the hard-earned lessons that you learned from your experiences in the field? So, yeah, it was, you know, now all these years later, I know that I should have, you know, listened to, to my own voice because I'm just really starting to to, to realize what, what my own voice sounds like. Um, so in terms of, you know, some of the, some of the hurdles that I faced, I, you know, I would give up, I think too easily because like I said, I was the type of person who I wanted things to happen fast for, for me. And if they weren't happening fast, then I would usually get frustrated and sometimes even quit. And so, um, you know, there are a couple of examples of that. Like when, you know, I didn't get a job as an MTV BJ, well, then I don't want a job at the local CBS affiliate in Framingham. I, I you know, I, I kind of, I, I really wish that um, I, I would have persevered even in the, the face of what seemed like failure more often. Um, when I went to MGM and I was working in the publicity department, I saw a lot of uh, assistants that were at my level getting promoted before me. And, you know, I, I, I got frustrated with that. And I, you know, I remember speaking to, you know, my boss at the time and, and in his answer was, you know, they've been here longer than you, your turn is coming. And I remember thinking, well, I'm not going to wait around for that. I'm going to, you know, I'm, I'm, I ended up leaving and I went to Loud Records because I had an opportunity there, you know, so it was, uh, you know, I wish I would have, I really wish I would have, you know, stuck it out a little bit longer. And I was just, I was so young though. I was, you know, I was 20 when I got out of, out of college and got my first job. So it, there was a lot of, you know, I jumped around um, from, you know, job to job. And part of that is I didn't really know what I wanted. And part of it was, you know, not sticking in it for the, for the long haul. I didn't do that until I was in, in graduate school. And, um, and, you know, in my industry, so I know that, you know, you, we, we're, we might be talking about like issues related to gender. And so I happened to be in an industry that was populated by females. And so I never really experienced it, the, you know, the, the, the gender inequity related to being the only woman in the room. It was intersexual competition with other women, which is often indirect and veiled but can be a lot more intimidating and fierce than competition that you would have with you know, any man in the room. Um, so I faced that and as a result became really interested in that and studying that um, you know, when I went back to school. That's really cool. You just literally stole my question because I was about to ask if being a woman in the field kind of influenced your experience. But I guess since you mentioned about that sort of uh, higher level of competition between your peers who are women, 
Do you think that sort of competition kind of helped drove you back into uh, graduate school and academia? I think so. Yeah. I mean, um, I, you know, I've always been a pretty competitive person. I've always wanted to be the, the best. You know, I think that's why, you know, I was got so frustrated in publicity. So I had the, this is, it ended up not really being the right path for me. But as somebody who really wants to succeed, I was, you know, frustrated by that. And I, I always wanted to win and, and be the best at everything. It was really hard for me to be the best uh, with what I was doing. And I think, you know, over time grew frustrated with that. And that is what led me, you know, to uh, psychology. But because I had witnessed so much in my mind, strange behavior. So like I did see the women fighting with each other a lot um, indirectly. I, you know, I saw a lot of strange behavior from, you know, the, the talent that we were working with within Hollywood and, you know, the way people built, you know, uh, intimate relationships was strange to me. So I became really interested in, in, in people in general, um, but particularly how women compete with each other and how people form romantic relationships. So that really formed the basis of most of my early research. And that was through observation, through, you know, 10 years in Hollywood and, uh, you know, observing a lot of um, different, you know, things. So I, so I never felt the, like I said, the gender inequity because, you know, men were taking up all the space in the room. It was, you know, it was, it was how women were navigating um, a hierarchy and women are historically not as good at that as men are because we formed relationships in very different ways with our same sex peers across human history. Um, and, you know, I didn't know that at the time. I just was like, gosh, why are women acting like this with, with each other? And, 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 and became curious about that. And then when I started taking, you know, classes in psychology, I, a light really came on for me because it was just so illuminating to think about you know, how our behavior was forged over thousands and thousands of years of human history. So we're brain, our brains are really designed to solve problems that existed thousands of years ago and not necessarily today, but we still have those brains that are designed to solve, in, in many cases, ancient problems, but we're in our modern world. And so I, that, that became a really fascinating area of research for me is looking at how you know, these older adaptations function in a modern world when they meet each other. Um, and so, like I said, I didn't know at the time, you know, why women tended to be so mean often indirectly and throw each other under the bus. I, I thought I had more allies in men, quite frankly, in organizations than I had in women. And I didn't know why. And so that was when I started to think, well, maybe publicity is not for me. And I started to take evening classes in psychology. I, I was just drawn to the material because I felt it answered a lot of the questions and frustrations that I had interacting with people in, in general and within myself, some of the behavior that I, I, I saw in me and that you could make a career out of this, you know, studying, behavior and thinking about, you know, the, the, the history of the human civilization and how this comes to bear in our modern world 
was like, oh, I want to do that. And then it also on the side provided a lot of answers that, you know, to the, to, to some of the things that I saw in the workplace. That's really cool. And it's actually a perfect segue into our second topic, which is your academic experiences as a PhD student, as well as within mm -hmm. university. So would you say, you kind of touched upon it, but your industry industry experiences definitely helped push you into your academia role. Um, and I think when we think about professors, we usually think of elbow patches and like hour long lectures. But as you said, research is a huge component of being a professor. What's been your favorite piece of research that you've done so far and what are you currently working on right now? So that's a, a good question. It's a tough question because I've had a number of different, you know, projects that I've worked on that I, I really enjoyed. Um, so one of the projects that I had the most fun developing and working on and even more fun presenting was a study that I did when I was a postdoc, a postdoctoral researcher at the University um, of Minnesota. And it's a, it was a project on why women love bad boys. So the rebel, the, you know, devil may care, you know, charismatic, socially dominant type of guy women tend to swoon over is, you know, why, why is that, that women go after these types of men, even though we know that they don't tend to be the best boyfriends in the world in terms of long-term commitment and, and being there for you emotionally, we, we can't seem to resist them sometimes. And so that project was really drilling down into, you know, not only why do women go after these men, but what kind of behaviors do we see them exhibit that pushes them toward these guys. And so as part of that package of studies, we hired actors. I was able to, you know, have the budget to hire actors to and, and then one of my uh, friends from college who ended up becoming a Hollywood screenwriter wrote scripts for these bad boy types of guys that we um, compared to um, a scripts that were written to for like the good guys, you know, the guys that are kind of like, they're not as exciting, maybe they're a little boring, but we know that they're going to be there for us, um, you know, and, and support us. And so we, we made scripts up for these two different types of guys and we called it, you know, the sexy cad versus the good dad. <laughs> That's how it was, you know, sort of, we, we talked about it. And then the media, of course, loved picking it up on that. And actually, I think that might've even ended up being part of the title of the paper, but it, what we did, so in experiments, you always wanna control as many extraneous features of the environment um, or the study itself as you possibly can. So you can you know, rule out everything but what you're trying to manipulate. So in the study that we put together in Minnesota, we had hired actors, um, but we wanted to control individual differences in you know, mannerisms, hair color, you name it. And so what we did was we had them tape themselves acting like a bad boy. They were introducing themselves to um, the women who were part of our study. And they either had to you know, act really cool and charismatic and funny and exciting, or they were just like nervous, like, oh, 
uh, you know, I really don't know what to say, but, you know, kind of nervous and looking down. And we had the same men read both scripts and the women thought that they were twins. So we were, so, so that was one, you know, really amazing control piece of the study that we were able to keep constant was it was the same person actually, even though the women thought it was part of a twin study. And so they were looking at the same guy who was either really, you know, a sexy cat type of guy, or he was a good dad. And it was, it was fun to, 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 we videotaped the whole, the, all the interactions. So we saw how the women were behaving and how they were changing their behavior. So they would meet the men. And then later on, they would know they were interacting with them again and see how their behavior would change when they were interacting with the sexy cat guy versus the good dad who was very nice guy, very sweet, but unsure of himself a little bit, but, you know, definitely was, you know, getting good grades and was set up for a great job, but he was just not as exciting. And the other guy was just like, look, you know, I don't know if I'm the right guy for you. You know, I don't know if you're the right girl for me, but I can promise you this. If you go out with me, you will have a romance so intense, so exhilarating that you might just start writing with your left hand or your right, you know, if you're left-handed, you know, he was so sure of himself and the women were just like, oh my God, <laughs> they, were, they were, you know, so we, we coded their verbal flirting, their nonverbal flirting, um, their perceptions of this guy. And then when we had them evaluate, you know, this guy for another woman. So basically when they were the observer and not the person who was interacting with these men, they rightly saw, you know, that they would not be good partners. But when it was someone they were considering as a potential partner for themselves, like this guy might really be interested in me, then the sort of rose colored glasses come on. And they're like, well, he's really, yeah, wow, he's so much fun. And it might be, you know, it's kind of like we have that, well, for me, he may change behavior. Anyway, that was the funnest experiment I've ever put together. And I had so much fun talking about it. And I have a TEDx talk that features that study. That's really cool. I That was an incredible story. I did not know that psychology experiments were this much fun. <laughs> <laughs> well, they can be. And so what am I working on now? So most of my work now is with my students. So it's usually student-led, student-guided research. Um, so we, we, we look a lot at um, consumer behavior within the marketing department. That's you know most of what we focus on. Um, one recent project looked at serendipity and the powerful effects of serendipity. We all love you know, to have as many choices as possible. Think about when you go into a cheesecake factory, like that huge menu. It seems awesome because it's never ending, but it actually it actually doesn't lead to a high degree of satisfaction. So we we compare you know endless choice to uh, happy accidents is what we, what we you know which is essentially what serendipity is. And a lot of times when we have things delivered to us randomly, we tend to like these things more. It's one of the reasons why on Netflix now you'll see um, Netflix um, shuffle play because we've been locked down for so long and we're sick of making choices. So we need something that's just serendipitously appears on our television set. <laughs> so we've been looking into that and then other work that um, you might know about with the Center for Women in Business that is looking at 
you know, what are the hurdles and barriers that women are facing in within organizations um, and internally as they're contemplating their own work-life balance because women face uh, a work-life balance in a little bit of a different way than men do because women are valued for their nurturing, caregiving, you know, you know, family investment um, as, you know, a caregiver as much as they are in their career. So uh, we feel extra pressure to perform highly in both areas. So within our family and within our careers. And so how do women juggle that? How do women you know, make decisions about their likelihood of promotion or even wanting to ascend the corporate ladder? And how can we eliminate some of those barriers and make the work-life balance um, a, a, a little easier for women and for men. So, you know, that's, that's a little bit of what I'm working on. Now I don't have actors coming in anymore, <laughs> but that sure was fun. Yeah, and it's really interesting that you mentioned the RBS Center for Women in Business, because you are actually one of the research directors, I believe, for yes. the center. Yeah, yeah. so, um, Tell us to the audience, um, what's the center about and what kind of drew you into becoming so involved with this center? So I run the research component of the center. The other components are you know, education and scholarship. So uh, we provide you know, scholarships for uh, students and workshops and seminars um, that in, are, are, are guided by the, you know, the research that, that we're doing. And most of our research is focused on what happens when women hit sort of the mid-career mark and they really come face-to-face -face with that delicate balance of, of work life and family life. Um, and so, you know, I faced this, many women, this is when we see a lot of attrition, women pulling out of the workplace because organizations don't really set it up. Uh, to make it easy to have flexibility, especially without, you know, we have a lot of stigma too surrounding, you know, taking advantage of some of these, you know, leave programs or family assistance and men certainly don't take advantage of it at, at the rate that women do. Um, and then a lot of, you know, uh, implicit bias and stereotypes towards, you know, women and um, their dedication to their careers compared to men. And so we really want to look into that area of what happens in mid-career, what are the, the specific hurdles, how can we, you know, how can we put, um, uh, you know, at least a, a bit of a stop to some of this attrition, what are the things that organizations can do, what are the things that, you know, we can educate women about um, in terms of making that balance a little bit easier. And then the other part that we're focused on at the center is looking at male allyship, especially in corporations that um, and, and areas of corporations that were different from what I faced. So I faced a, you know, a, 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 a skew, a female skew. So there were more females than there were males working in um, marketing and, and, and publicity. But it's usually the, in many fields, especially at the high levels, it's, it's the opposite. So it's, it's heavily male skewed. And, and, and that becomes even more difficult for women to really break through and out of the stereotypes and, and have their voice heard. It's difficult. It is really difficult um, in, a, in a sea of men 
um, who, you know, come across, who, who often value women for being what they have in their mind as what women should be, which is, you know, nurturing and quiet and, and sweet. And, you know, you know, it, we, this even goes back to how we talk to little girls, you're a sweet little angel. Oh, look at my boy. You're such a champ. You know, it's competition for the boy and it's sweet little nurturing angel for a girl. And so these these gender roles are so deeply, you know, dug in 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 our in our psyche. It's it's hard to break free. So how do women get their voices heard when they're in an environment that isn't really um, supportive of that? And one of the key um, uh, uh, sort of the, the linchpin in, in, in opening that possibility up is, is having these male allies that make sure that everybody's voices are heard and everybody's ideas are attributed to the person who came up with them. And so part of that is, you know, figuring out how to get, um, you know, all males will say, most men will be like, yeah, I want to, you know, I want to make sure that I'm supporting women, but they don't necessarily know how to go about doing that. And so we're, you know, looking at the best ways to set up, um, you know, cross-gendered sponsorships and mentorships um, and, you know, what are best practices in doing that. And so we're just kind of like on the cusp of that right now, but having, you know, someone in your organization, um, especially a male, because they're the ones who tend to be um, higher up. And believe it or not, you know, women don't, you know, this is a separate issue, but women in high positions don't necessarily support junior women either. But we're focused on the male allyship simply because this is, this, this is most C-suite leadership teams are made up of mostly men. That's really interesting. And when you talk about C-suite, obviously, uh, within the university context, you also have these sort of systems going on. Have you ever thought that because you're a female professor, you've faced certain challenges that your male peers have not? So, so that's, that's a really interesting question. I, um, I, you know, I've certainly been in my fair share of conference rooms where I've been, you know, among very few women there. And I have had, you know, I've, I've had men ask me to take notes and get things that I feel like are very, you know, gendered because, yeah. and, and, and honestly, like I have to stop myself from wanting to become what my mind feels like is the kind of woman that all of these higher up men want to, to see because I feel like they hold the strings in terms of, you know, my promotion, my um, merit evaluation, uh, and, you know, to come in there and, and act outside of this, is, this is like such a big problem. I have felt that I have to behave a certain way to get the things that I, with, with men to, to, to get the things that I, that I want. And a lot of times that is like, oh, I'll take notes and, you know, or they'll ask me to, to do it. Um, and I, I really admire women who, who come in and, and, and make sure that their voice is heard. But, you know, unfortunately there's a, a penalty that women can face for doing that also. Um, so in terms of, you know, favoritism, is that what you asked about? Like, if, you know, other than, you know, 
feeling it when I'm in a room full of my male peers. Um, I, I, I do feel that pressure. I think many women have where, um, you know, men take up a lot of the space in the room and I just, you know, tend to not do that. It's not my personality, but when I, when I, now I'm very aware of it. So I do, I, I do notice it. Um, it, it's a hard environment, you know, to, you know, have a male skewed leadership or at least more men that are at high levels and very few um, women uh, to, you know, to, to come in and, 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 and feel like your voice can be heard also and that it would be safe to make it heard. Um, because I have seen colleagues who are female colleagues who are more socially dominant come in and take no prisoners. And, you know, they are, you know, you would call them like, like they, they come in like a boss and they don't think about, oh, well, these men think I have to act this certain way and I better do that. Otherwise they won't like me. And I have seen, you know, the, the men come together and, and disparage a person, a woman who comes in and, and is sure of herself and confident just like they are, but to see it in a woman, there's a contrast effect there from what they're used to seeing. And, you know, they, they pick up on it. And so it's, it's, it's such a delicate balance for women. And, and that's why I became interested in working with the center and becoming the research director, because there's just so much work to be done, you know, in that area for women and, and, you know, within organizations and, and, you know, internally within, you know, women and, and figuring out what is the right way forward. Exactly. And I think a lot of corporations and institutions have been trying to make that kind of bridge that gap. I know for myself, I've been applying to a lot of diversity programs for women and mm -hmm. people of color. And I think these are the sort of uh, early stepping stones into mm -hmm. finally achieving that, you know, and closing that gap that we have as of right now. But as you kind of said, it's very obvious that we still have a lot, a lot to do before we actually reach that goal. Yeah, we do. And, you know, a lot of these um, perceptions that we have, we're not really aware of why we have them. They served some functions many, many years ago that they don't serve today. So I think that, you know, like I said, when we talk to men, they're very, they're, yes, I want to support women. You know, they will tell you uh, that they want to do as much as they possibly can. Um, and so for some men and, and, and women too, you know, we're, we're not really aware how, how, how much our stereotypes and, you know, these biases are so ingrained in our um, processing that they come out. And so that's make, what makes it even harder, you know? So it's, it, but, but the, the understanding of it and the figuring out workarounds for this, these, you know, tendencies to slip into our stereotypes or slip into our biases, um, that is extremely critical. So we cannot erase these things, but we can find workarounds for them. 
we, we have very high, highly, you know, uh, we're wired for, for fatty foods, for example. That's why McDonald's French fries to many people are so desirable and addicting and like the, you know, the, the salty fat, like sometimes we can't stop eating it and we crave it, but we have the ability to not eat French fries and cake all day. So we may want to do that, but we don't, that's a workaround. And so we need to find out what are the ideal and optimal workarounds for, you know, not just, you know, anybody can set up diversity, but it's the inclusion part that really is important and really where we're, we're failing, um, I think. And, you know, and equity too, of course, but we wanna make sure that everybody, that there is inclusion and that's where, you know, that's where I think there's a lot of work to be done. Definitely, and given what you learned in your research, and all these kinds of experience that you had, is there anything that you think you would have done differently in your career, both in education and in the industry? So, you know, that's a good question. And, and I, I really don't, you know, I really don't think so. Certainly there are some steps that I've taken that, you know, I probably wouldn't do that again. Um, I'm glad I had the publicity experience that I had. I'm glad I had the industry experience. Um, prior to going back to school, um, you know, I had the, you know, I had that process of learning what, what wasn't for me. Um, and it took me a little while, you know, I, you know, I was an older graduate student, not by a lot, but, you know, by a good, you know, at least five years older than most of the other students. Cause I had, you know, had eight years of industry experience before I went back to school, but you know, for me, you know, I, it, I guess that was the way it was, you know, meant to work out. I don't think I would have been uh, the researcher I am today without having had that um, experience. The one thing I would say is, you know, and I, and I touched on this a little bit before, is just, you know, listening more closely to that internal guide inside of you than, than certainly I did. Um, you know, I, I love research. I have a, a great curiosity about, about people. I can spend hours on ancestry.com, you know, so that is one thing that, that I know that I intrinsically love. And then the voiceover stuff that I'm doing is kind of going back to the broadcast journalism. So I kind of had it, I was touching upon it early on and, you know, who knows, but I, I don't have any regrets for how my, how my path you know, turned out. I'm really happy to find myself in a business school because I'm able to apply the research in a way that I wouldn't necessarily be able to do in terms of talking to organizations and, um, you know, doing, you know, you know, having the findings that we um, discuss actually be, you know, translated and, and incorporated into what organizations are, are doing. Definitely. And it has seemed like it's been paying off so far because you've won numerous awards in your field. And I think that is absolutely impressive. Oh, thank you. I've and, done <laughs> yeah. Um, and in terms of kind of in the realms of education, what would be your advice for people, for women who are considering getting a PhD or are kind of uncertain if a PhD is something that's relevant for their career choices? Mm -hmm. 
because it isn't relevant for most career choices. So if you are someone who would like to do research and be a professor at you know, a, a university, then most PhDs are a pathway to that and almost exclusively to that. So that's what we train our PhDs in marketing, works the same way in psychology, and I'm sure the same way in many other departments. Um, if you're going to become a PhD, you're going to most likely uh, be working in a university. That's, that's the path. So if you don't think you wanna teach and do research, you really don't need a PhD. That's not to say that some people who, who are PhDs do not go on to work in, um, in industry because you know, a small percentage of them do because there are, you know, in, in most industries, they do hire uh, researchers, data analysts, survey builders. Um, so there are jobs to be had in industry too, but I would think really hard about it because it is a huge investment of time uh, you don't make a lot of money when you're a PhD student, so you're going to be poor for five or six years. So you have to really weigh the trade-offs. So if it's not necessary, you you know you might not need it. And so a PhD is definitely not something to do just because you have nothing else better to do. <laughs> it's a lot of hard work, um, and you know, and, and you only want to do that if you're going to see the payoff on the back end, depending on what you want your career to be. That's some very insightful wisdom. Mm -hmm. And as we come to end, uh, I'd love to end with a few uh, rapid fire questions. So are you ready? Sure. sure. Okay, so what's the first thing you would do if the pandemic er ends tomorrow? Fly away somewhere warm immediately. Good choice. Mm -hmm. And since you've performed at a TED Talk, I assume you love TED Talks. So what's a recommendation that you would give to our audience? Uh, for a TED Talk? Yeah. So Peter Gray, this is off the top of my head because I just watched it. Um, Peter Gray has a TED Talk on unschooling. So it really takes on our formal education system and asks whether or not it's really beneficial to our children because the over the course of thousands of years of human history, kids learned through their own, you know, guided, uh, you know, motivation toward what they were particularly interested in. And along the way, they learned everything that they needed to know um, about, you know, navigating in their social world. And so we're taking that part, we've taken that part, you know, away from children and I found it just so fascinating. And I forget what the title of his talk is, but um, his, his name is Dr. Peter Gray, G-R-A-Y, and he's at Boston College. And I, I found his thoughts about unschooling super fascinating. Well, that does sound fascinating and I'll add that to my list. Um, okay. <laughs> and this has been an incredible conversation, Christina. So thank you for being with here, uh, being here with us today. I've learned so much and I'm sure our listeners did too. And awesome. if you're still here, thank you for listening. And please make sure to join us next episode with Nadia Jagasar, the founder of Euphoria Events. We'll be talking all about marketing and branding. So make sure to listen in.
This podcast was made possible thanks to our amazing podcast committee, and credits for the music goes to Shruti and Netra.